darkness to light. As the sun contests the moon for control of the sky each day, so too does it struggle against the darkness each year. In the Ides of March, the icy grip of winter begins to loosen. The position of the Earth changes such that the northern point of its axis tilts towards the sun, causing the northern hemisphere to receive more direct sunlight and longer days, warming the climate to conditions conducive to life. To the ancients, the herald of a new dawn was marked during the spring equinox, the point at which day and night are of equal length. Metaphorically, this event represented a turning of the tide, in which the solar deity gains the upper hand over the forces of darkness which had overcome him during the winter solstice, the point at which night is longest and days are shortest. As the sun lowered in the sky, the god was believed to be traveling through the underworld in a great trial, after which he miraculously emerged from the abyss, a portent that the god would inevitably triumph and bring salvation to the world. This is one of the greatest themes ever expressed in the annals of mythology, replaying itself out year after year. In this is represented a great infinite cycle. From every death comes rebirth, for every end a beginning. There is no finality in either, as the nature of divinity is imperishable. Welcome to the Hidden Passage. It is sensible that man would have anointed the sun as the first god, as it is responsible for the flourishing of all life and protects humans from the dangers of night. Without its presence, life would be extinguished and the world would surely end. The solar deity was associated with great power and was revered worldwide. The importance of the sun emphasized that of the equinoxes and solstices to the ancients. These were holy days and also served as markers for the seasons, which were extremely important to them in knowing when to sow crops and when to harvest. Worship and offerings had to be made on these days to honor the gods in hopes that they would create favorable conditions. An unusually long winter or a drought could be a devastating event. 
the spring, or vernal equinox, would have been particularly important as a bridge between the destruction of winter and renewal of spring. Due to the vital importance of gods that ruled over the forces of nature, many pagans recognized the primacy of some gods over others, known as henotheism, acknowledging many gods, but with a sense of hierarchy, at the head of which was one or a few supreme deities. A strong example of this can be seen in the Nordic Allfather, or Odin, the creator of the world who came before all others. Solar deities were at the top of many pantheons in more agrarian cultures. Over time, the return of the sun became a metaphor for the prevailing of good over evil. This is because the primary purpose of spirituality is to instill hope in the heart of humanity, a topic on which writer and orator Manly P. Hall ruminated. Human beings are endowed with the faculty of reason, and therefore, from time immemorial, man could not survive on instinct alone, as he could not help but look around him at his dire circumstances and make the logical assessment that life was insurmountable and ultimately futile. It was full of hardship and danger. Man was constantly haunted by the specter of death. He had no sense of where he came from or why he existed. He needed answers to orient himself and provide a sense of purpose, elevating him out of a state of confusion and fear. The idea that he was alone, that there was no help for him, and that death was the end would inevitably cause him to descend into nihilism and ruin. Psychologically, he required a solution. Intuition told him that there had to be something more, a reason for existence. And so the belief in invisible realities, spirits, and gods began to emerge. Early man sought divination through inducing trance states and second sight to see and cross into these invisible worlds in hopes of receiving answers through revelations. Beyond purpose, humans also required faith that the future holds some sort of salvation, that the ultimate conclusion of existence is restoration of all to its natural state of good and wholeness. If not in this world, then in the next. This would make the struggles and sorrows of life more tolerable, and the efforts to develop oneself and his community worthwhile. Faith gives us meaning, and in turn the necessary strength of will to not merely survive, but also to improve upon our circumstances and work towards a better future. It makes us whole. This problem and solution is still the state in which we find ourselves as we are no closer to proving our faith today as in the beginning. But it is in the very nature of faith that physical proof is not required. With the modern comforts and distractions of life, some people no longer feel the need for it. But in times of personal crisis, they instinctively return to faith with as much necessity as early man. Even those who have turned away from religion tend to have faith in the ability to build a better world. 
a secular paradise of man's making, the possibility of which is no more tangible than spiritualism. In winter, the living things in nature appear to die. In actuality, most go dormant, and the genetic codes for their re-expression are preserved. In the spring, they return in the same forms such that it seems they never left. By all appearances, their old bodies are restored. It may be from this observation that the concept of resurrection, or the restoring of dead to life, came to be. The details regarding death and resurrection in myth can also be traced back to the sun. The three-day period in which the god is dead corresponds to the three-day period in which the sun stops its procession across the sky at its nadir during the winter solstice, after which time it appears to begin moving north. Many dying resurrecting gods are deities of harvest and fertility, also of the highest importance, and are two embodiments of a repeating cycle dependent on the sun, connecting the patterns below to those above. Ecologically, the combining of material of the earth and the energy of the sun is what creates life. The metaphysical truth which this was believed to reveal was expressed by the ancient Gnostics. Simon Magus, the alleged founder of Gnosticism, wrote, Of the universal eons, there are two shoots, without beginning or end, springing from one root, which is the power invisible. Of these two shoots, one is manifested from above, which is the great power, the universal mind ordering all things, male, and the other, from below, the great thought, female, producing all things. Hence pairing with each other, they unite and manifest the middle distance. In this is the Father who sustains all things and nourishes those things which have a beginning and an end. In common mythical terms, it was the marriage between the Sky Father and the Earth Mother, through whose consummation spirit incarnates into a physical form and creates the world. Perhaps this connects to the later idea of the demigod, who through a divinely chosen mother comes into the world and later becomes a hero to it. During the Hellenistic period, the Near East and surrounding areas from North Africa to Mesopotamia to Europe saw the emergence of the Savior God. They often shared similar stories. They were depicted as children of a supreme deity immaculately conceived, who were believed to walk among humans and who underwent some form of passion or struggle and suffering, some of whom died as a result and were subsequently resurrected. These are subcategorized under the dying resurrecting God. Through this process, they defeated death and returned to share this power with their followers through a form of communion, which is seen in the cults devoted to these gods, the followers of which were assured personal salvation and eternal life. After this period, these gods ascended to a higher realm. Osiris, Dionysus, Zalmoxis, Inanna, Romulus, 
Asclepius, Baal, and Hercules are all examples of this type of god. Esteemed archaeologist James B. Pritchard noted, Nothing in the Jesus myth occurred at random. Every detail was a part of a formal sacrificial tradition, even to the procession of palms which glorified sacred kings in ancient Babylon. The study of these religions in comparison to the story of Christ is a historically contentious subject, muddied by biases of Christians who fear the undermining of their religion, as well as atheists who seek to relegate all religion to invented fantasy. Some have tended to overlook and misinterpret evidence to support their preconceived notions. The differences and their importance continue to be debated. While the idea of the recurring, dying, resurrecting God was initially refuted in academia, attitudes have since shifted. Although early conceptions of this archetype were flawed and included unrelated myths, they did not invalidate the category as a whole. In more recent years, the list has been refined and localized. Upon closer analysis, it appears the similarities become stronger and some of the differences become subsidiary possibly the result of cultures adapting the story according to their own traditions. Early Christians did not refute this, and they saw the similarities as so significant that they felt the need to explain it by stating that these pre-Christ religions were created by the devil in order to confuse humanity. These similarities do not dictate that the Christ story was a fabrication, and there was certainly a historical Jesus Christ, but the possibility remains that some of the recorded details surrounding his life and death were drawn from pre-existing myth. Psychologist Carl Jung considered the myth of Osiris to be a foreshadow of Christ, that the archetype of the Savior existed in the collective unconscious as a sort of prophetic vision. Whatever the implication, the concept of resurrection appears to be ancient and deeply ingrained in humanity, itself being resurrected again and again to manifest in our minds and in the world. Notwithstanding, there are a few important distinctions between the pagan savior gods and Christ which make Christianity unique. Jesus is recorded in multiple historical accounts as a person who actually existed and the pagan savior gods did not choose to die as Jesus did. Also, the Christian resurrection is final, which is in line with their linear conception of history with a beginning and an apocalyptic end. In pagan religions, with notable exceptions, such as the Norse belief in Ragnarok, the world is depicted as running in continuous cycles like those in nature and so their gods would continue to be resurrected and return. Death and resurrection as a recurring element in myth was given serious consideration by literature, comparative mythology, and religion professor Joseph Campbell in his theory of the monomyth, which he termed the hero's journey. He believed this to be the preeminent narrative structure ubiquitously used as the basis for myth worldwide. He argued that the hero's journey takes on many forms, 
And while they differ in specific characters and details, they all follow this template and thus carry the same meaning. Hence the title of his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. The hero's journey takes the protagonist from the known worlds to the unknown and back, and is divided into stages that mark important turning points in the story. The central crisis of the story lies in the figurative innermost cave of the unknown, where the hero must face his greatest challenge in order to achieve the object of his quest. This is the most important stage of the journey because it leads to the transformation within the hero, wherein he is given divine reward, which allows him to shed his weakness and elevates him to a godlike state, a process known as apotheosis. It gave him the power to complete his mission and return to assist his people. This was often depicted in the form of a death and resurrection, or at least an intense struggle and sacrifice for the hero. While this process was always harrowing, it must have been seen as necessary by the people who held these stories in such high regard. Campbell proposed that this originates from the fact that in nature, all things must eventually die so more can be born. Old must make way for the new, a union of opposites and an equal exchange. This is a belief in spiritual principle as well as a scientific truth, in that the earth can only sustain so much life. The ancients understood this and accommodated it in the form of sacrifice to the gods, knowing that for whatever blessing they received, they had to give something up of personal value. They sacrificed for the gods as the gods sacrificed for them. The theory of the monomyth is another contentious subject, and accusations of twisting theories and drawing false parallels to fit a preconceived mold have been leveled at its proponents. While this monomyth does not encompass all mythology, there are certainly mythological motifs across cultures. Jung considered this motif to be symbolic of psychologically integrating the shadow. The shadow is composed of the least desirable aspects of personality that one rejects by pushing them into the subconscious. These potentially positive elements metastasize and manifest their negative sides as a result of repression, springing back up to the surface as a countermeasure. No longer recognizing the shadow as part of one's own identity, it is projected onto external sources, which appear as outside threats. The abyss represents the subconscious mind, and the monster that lurks within it is the shadow. The hero's weakness in the midst of this monster is his own ignorance. The reward at the battle's end is the harnessing of one's own potential by assimilating the hidden aspects of the psyche and becoming the complete and true self. This is called individuation. In a truly alchemical process, weakness is transmuted into strength. During this transformation, the ego or persona, the self-contrived identity that a person falsely believes to be the self, is destroyed, allowing the true self to be reborn. The delusion must end for the truth to be realized. This is signified by the death and resurrection. 
The oldest known myth relating to the theme of resurrection is the ancient Sumerian tale, The Descent of Inanna, dating back to 2100 BC. The story recounts the death of the god Dumuzi and his wife Inanna's efforts to bring him back from the underworld. Overcome with sadness, she travels to the land of the dead, where she is judged, killed, and hung on display. As a goddess of fertility, her absence results in the earth becoming barren. The crops die, the animals no longer reproduce. If she does not return, all life will end. Inanna's patrons make a supplication to the gods for assistance, to which the god Anki responds after three days by sending a vine of life down to Inanna and Dumuzi, resurrecting them both. The caveat is that they can only remain in the above world for six months, after which time, Dumuzi must descend once again, followed by Inanna, thus creating the cycles of winter and summer. This story is repeated in many cultures. In Babylon, Inanna is known as Ishtar. In ancient Canaan, she is known as Astarte. In Greece, she is Demeter. In Rome, she is Ceres. The most influential mystery religion, defined as a religion centered on the secret or mystical rites for initiates, was the Eleusinian. The mysteries were cults devoted to one god within a larger pantheon, whose purpose was to elucidate within their orders the secret esoteric wisdom encoded in myth. The Eleusinian mystery revolved around Ceres, the god of agriculture and fertility, and her daughter, Persephone. In the myth of the abduction of Persephone, she is taken against her will by Pluto, the god of Hades, to the underworld. Her mother, Ceres, embarks on a quest to rescue her daughter, wandering the world carrying two torches, representing light and reason. She eventually finds her and treats with Pluto, convincing him to allow Persephone to return to the earth for half the year. The Eleusinian priests considered this story to be a parable for the descent of human beings from their true spiritual form in the higher realms into their corporeal form in the material world. In a sense, the concepts of life and death were reversed. Life itself was considered to be the true death as it meant the estrangement of the soul from its higher nature, and death was essentially the birth of the soul back into its true form. This is why the lesser rites of Persephone, which recognized her descent into the underworld, were practiced during spring. The wanderings of Ceres represented man's quest for spiritual enlightenment during his earthly life and emphasized the importance of transcendence, similar to Christianity. The Easter holiday is an homage to the resurrection of Christ. The origin of the word Easter is uncertain. The 8th century English Benedictine monk, Bede the Venerable, proposed that it was derived from the Germanic name for the goddess of spring, Ostra, 
but due to the church's historical and outward aversion to all things pagan, today it is considered to have come from the German word for dawn, Ostarum. While Christian holidays themselves are not pagan in origin, Christmas, as well as Easter, were observed at the same time of year as pagan religious holidays. Despite these differing traditions, there is a common theme in the timeless symbol of rebirth, of which all of these cultures saw the spring season as the perfect embodiment. The Bible does not attribute any specific dates for the birth and death of Christ. While some consider the reason for choosing these dates to be based on early beliefs about when Christ was born and died, it is possible that the reason they chose dates near pagan holidays may have to do with the early church's efforts to convert pagan peoples. Whether or not this influenced the dates, it is certainly why many pagan customs and symbols are used in Christian holidays. Before Christianity had gained political and military power, it relied on the work of missionaries. In the early days, it was not an easy task to spread a foreign Middle Eastern religion to pagan Europe. Europeans were firmly entrenched in and faithful to the old ways. It was a system which they had no reason to abandon. Because of this, early missionaries had to be clever in their efforts to sell their new religion. One technique was the process of syncretism, the blending of two different belief systems. The idea was that keeping the old traditions and simply changing the deity, then gradually completing the transition, would be less of a shock to prospective converts. In some cases, people could even be convinced that the deities were the same, drawing connections such as the tripartite Celtic God and the Holy Trinity. As Bede remarked, tell Augustine that he should by no means destroy the temples of the gods, but rather the idols within those temples. Let him, after he has been purified with holy water, place altars and relics of the saints in them. For, if those temples are well built, they should be converted from the worship of demons to the service of the true God. Thus, seeing that their places of worship are not destroyed, the people will banish error from their hearts and come to places familiar and dear to them in acknowledgement and worship of the true God. Further, since it has been their custom to slaughter oxen in sacrifice, they should receive some solemnity in exchange. Let them therefore, on the day of dedication of their churches, or on the feast of their martyrs whose relics are preserved in them, build themselves huts around their one-time temples and celebrate the occasion with religious feasting. They will sacrifice and eat the animals, not any more as an offering to the devil, but for the glory of God, to whom, as the giver of all things, they will give thanks for having been satiated. Thus, if they are not deprived of all their exterior joys, they will more easily taste the interior ones. For surely it is impossible to efface all at once everything from their strong minds. Just as, when one wishes to reach the top of a mountain, he must climb by stages and step by step 
not by leaps and bounds. As this system was implemented, many old pagan sites were converted. Churches were built upon sacred land, temples were repurposed, and some were razed to the ground completely and rebuilt. In the fourth century, it was decided that the tomb of Christ was located at a spot where a temple of Astarte stood. It was demolished to build the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the most sacred Christian site. There is an attitude among pagan revivalists that Christianity stole pagan traditions and rebranded them as their own, and one among Christian fundamentalists that Christian holidays are secretly pagan festivals honoring Satan. The most probable truth is that the church allowed pre-existing customs to survive into the Christian world as long as it was in honor of their God. While Christian culture emphasized asceticism, they decided to permit what they saw as sinful decadence as a tactical decision. This permission was eventually sanctioned by Pope Gregory I. The celebratory indulgences associated with holidays are certainly in the spirit of paganism. The original observances of Christmas and Easter, which began in the second century, were typically solemn days of contemplation. The desire of Christians to spread their religion to the world goes back to its very beginnings. During his life, Jesus said to his disciples, Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This is known as the Great Commission. In the first century AD, the Council of Jerusalem decided that Gentiles, or non-Jews, could not be excluded from following Jesus, a departure from the traditional view that they had been exclusively chosen to enter the covenant with God. The first expansion of Christianity was by the apostles into Rome, where they managed to convert a portion of the urban population. And so Christianity became a religion largely centralized in urban areas. The term pagan originates from the Latin word paizan, meaning rustic peasant, referring to anyone living in the country who practiced the old ways. This expansion culminated in the conversion of Roman Emperor Constantine I, who claimed to have had a vision of a cross in the sky during the Battle of Milvian Bridge. The battle was won by the Romans, convincing him that the Christian God was responsible. At this period in history, the Roman Empire was in decline, which led its leaders to believe that they had fallen out of favor with their gods, or that they were not as powerful as Christ. This likely contributed to their adoption of Christianity. In 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, which included Constantine and a number of leading church bishops, convened out of a desire to quell the heresy of the Eastern Church. They had begun to promulgate the belief of Arianism, proposed by the priest Arius, which stated that Jesus was not in fact God himself. Just as pagans had many variations of similar beliefs, so too did early sects of Christianity. 
at the behest of the bishops, Constantine exiled Arius, an action widely considered to have solidified the allegiance between church and state and set a standard of patronage to the Catholic Church. It was during this council that the date for Easter was established. Rather than a specific date, it was determined that it should be celebrated the first Sunday after the first full moon following the vernal equinox, known as the Paschal Moon. Because of this rather convoluted set of factors depending on both the solar and lunar calendars, the date of the Paschal Moon ranges from March 21st to April 18th, and so the date of Easter can fall on any Sunday between March 22nd and April 25th. The calculation is based on the Jewish observance of Passover during the Paschal Moon of March, and the belief that Jesus died on a Friday. The Passover tradition also carries the theme of rebirth, recognizing the spiritual rebirth of the Israelites being led out of slavery. It was important to them to observe the holiday in the spring during the first signs of life, just as the pagans did. One pagan influence on modern Easter customs comes from the Germanic festival of Astara, which honored Ostra, the goddess of spring, morning, and fertility, and her ending of winter by bringing light to the world. The word Ostra means spring, referring to the springing forth of light at dawn. With her arrival came the promise of renewal and fertility. The legend of the Easter bunny likely comes from the story of Ostra, who finds a wounded bird in the woods, buried in snow. She changes the bird into a rabbit in order to heal it, allowing it to hop over the snow to safety. The grateful hare, retaining qualities of its original bird form, then lays an egg for her as an act of reciprocation. The egg is an ancient symbol of fertility and promise of life that comes with the arrival of the spring season. The roundness of the egg is a correlating symbol, as the circle has no end or beginning, just as the cycle of life, and within it is contained the eternal center of the soul. The egg was sacred to many religions. To the Egyptians, the egg was a symbol of their solar deity, Ra. In some ancient religions, the world itself was believed to have started as a giant egg, known as the cosmic egg. There are two possible origins for the Easter egg hunt. The first relates to the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who organized egg hunts for women as a reenactment of the women who found the tomb of Jesus after the resurrection. Another is a German tradition wherein children would set up nests and wait for the Oosterhase, or Easter bunny, to lay its colored eggs in them. The rabbit is also a symbol of fertility and rebirth. As one of the most hunted prey animals, it reproduces prolifically out of necessity. The burrowing behavior of rabbits represents the descent into the underworld before resurrecting. Rabbits are also able to become pregnant a second time while carrying babies, which symbolizes immaculate conception. Despite being absent from scripture, 
These symbols were adopted by Christians to represent their beliefs. The rabbit signified the Virgin Mary. The egg became the tomb of Christ, the hatching of which represents his resurrection. The Eastern Orthodox tradition of dyeing their eggs red reflects the blood of Christ. Despite being adapted, the thematic undercurrent of these symbols is the same. Easter traditions were brought to America by German and Dutch immigrants in the 1700s. At the turn of the 20th century, these customs were popularized by an upwardly mobile Victorian society, among whom interest in the old ways was growing. It was probably during this time that pagan customs found their way back into largely sterilized Christian holidays. Easter began to shift to a more secular holiday, gravitating towards home and family rather than community and religion. And with growing popularity in American society came the inevitable commercialism of the holiday that we have today. traditions we practice without knowing or questioning where they came from or why they exist. Despite this, we seem to have a subconscious need to acknowledge them. They are an affirmation of the inherent value of existence, bringing us back to that immutable state despite how far we may wander from it in our busy lives. As the seasons change, we feel a change in ourselves and an instinctive need to express this and to honor the forces that drive it. Over the course of human history, by changing cultures, migration of peoples, and loss of records, traditions are lost, transformed, fragmented, and blended. And modern society has reduced their significance to ornamental. Yet somehow, despite all this, they carry on in some form or another, which speaks to the yearning deep within us for that which enriched the lives of our ancestors and gave them peace of heart. Religious skeptics attempt to prove pagan religions as the basis for Christianity as a way to discredit it. This is because they argue that pre-Christian beliefs were simply metaphors for nature, supernaturalized by cultures lacking scientific knowledge to explain its processes. This premise is based on faulty assumptions. The wise initiates of the mysteries believed that the physical universe itself communicated greater spiritual principles as it was an extension of the non-physical universe. The ideas imparted through it were confirmed to them through countless mystical experiences. If indeed they knew something we do not, and that all religions can be traced back to one source, this can be affirming rather than invalidating. Indeed, it illustrates that they are all based on a single transcendental truth. Perhaps this is why there are so many similarities across religions and disconnected cultures, because they are all derived from our universal connection to the divine, that despite all our forgotten ways, we will never truly lose. philosophical religious systems of mystical symbolism are 
in many cases emphases. They are not separate revelations, not religions apart from all other faith. They are man's search for truth, held within a framework of time and place, and subjected to the environmental limitations of race, of nation, of political histories, and many things of that nature. And thus, one of the great results of an honest search is the discovery of friend, the discovery of brotherhood, the discovery of the right power and purpose of working together for these great ends which we have none of us yet fully attained. Therefore it is not that one shall lead and others shall follow, but in the search for truth we are all brothers, searching together for that which is beyond us all. Consequently, our small jealousies and our petty prejudices can dissolve when we realize that we all bear approximately the same relationship to the sovereign center of truth, that one does not possess it and is passing it out to others, but that all, possessing parts of it, are searching for all of it, and sharing the parts together advances the search for totality.